I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Napa know-how. This month, Napa's got all kinds of motor oil deals that can save you some serious cash. Like a five-quart jug of Napa full synthetic motor oil for just $16.49. With savings like that, you may start feeling like a VIP. But don't let it go to your head. These oil deals are for everyone. Quality parts, helpful people. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. General state's pricing. Sales price does not include applicable state local taxes or recycling fees. Offer ends 831.20. Tell your chico pit boomers to 305, but I said Mr. Worldwide. You already know what it is. Listen to my new podcast from Negative to Positive. Subscribe today. Now, part of the things that we're doing over here at Negative to Positive is encouraging people to change their lives, change the things that are within their power. I want to thank our good friends at KFC for helping me bring this to you. Feed your whole crew with KFC. Let's go. I can get the KFC bucket of chicken, and you know, that's fire. Now, Bobo, you know that you could get that mac and cheese, that mashed potato, gravy, those biscuits. Now, that's that's trouble right there. That is fire right there. You know, on Negative to Positive, we're always talking about striving and achievement. And, and the Colonel Sanders story is is a story that inspired me since I was 10 years old. Look how our life comes full circle. Now I'm talking about Colonel Sanders and Kentucky Fried Chicken and how much I love it. <laughs> Listen to my new podcast from Negative to Positive. Check out the vodcast. Subscribe today. Apple Podcast. Podcast One. Spotify. doing good good to see you nice to see you i realized that it's been 10 years since i think i spoke to you for the change up or maybe nine years. right yep i remember it's um it's crazy how fast time goes unbelievable unbelievable and how the world has changed i mean immensely uh dramatically um how have the last i've been asking this of everyone how have the last few weeks uh, been for you you know, it's, 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 I think this is a very exciting time. And I think that the country has, is having an awakening that is long, long, long overdue. 
And for the health of this country, we need to grow up. We're a young country, you know. We have we came from some very sordid roots and we had very good intentions and it's time for us to make those intentions equal for everybody. So pretty good. You know, look, I, it's, it's a tough time for a lot of people and um, I hope everybody stays safe out there, but I also hope that we really do make the important changes that need to happen. I completely agree. Yeah. Um, jumping into why I get to talk to you today. Yeah. So I, wa- I watched Eurovision again for the second time last night. <laughs> and well, because I was going to talk to you and I wanted to, because I saw yeah. it like two weeks ago or something yeah. and I wanted to yeah. be fresh. So I actually, I really enjoyed it a lot more the second time. Um, like, I think it's going to be just a really good, hit, like a big hit for Netflix. I think it's coming out at, at just the right time. It's like a feel good movie. I mean, talk about timing for the film. Uh, look, it, it's a weird time for the film. I'm I, I'm so glad that you feel good about it. I'm a little bit unsure with the world the way it is, how it'll be received, frankly. But it's a very good movie. You know, you may, we all make, when I make movies, some of them come out better than others. This movie has a certain special warmth to it and a, and a heart to it that's really special. It's very fun. I think that Will Ferrell and Rachel give, like, career performances for me like something that i've just never seen either of them do exactly the way they do in this film and i really think that you know look the timing of the movie coming out the one thing that makes me sad you know look i'm still adjusting to the fact that it's going to be not in theaters and there was an intention for this movie to be in theaters once netflix saw it they were going to give it a, a week or so run um because when i tested the movie i was with an audience and all of a sudden i saw people the whole place laughing at different moments in the movie and really enjoying the ride. And I saw the cinema really big up on the screen and the performances and the lights. And it made me just wonder like how strange it is, how the world is changing the way we digest information. Nonetheless, I watched King of Staten Island on Friday night. um, And I was laughing and having an amazing time watching that movie. And at the end of the movie, it kind of reassured me, like, it's a different experience, but it's still an experience. It's still the movie that it is. And I'm excited to see how people react to it. It's been a really, you know, it's a very, it's a long time for me. I think it's 10 years since I've made a comedy. Uh, Yes. Yeah. I think you would know better than me. I needed to think about that, but yes. Change up was 10 years ago. That was the last comedy I made. Right. Well, I also think there's there's something about for me. I did not. I've heard of Eurovision. I'm. I think I'm the typical American. Maybe I've heard of Eurovision, but I knew nothing about it. Yeah. I think that this is the kind of movie that you're. It's going to play to a. I mean, the way people are going to appreciate this movie in Europe and in other countries versus America, it's a completely different thing. Completely, and we tested it in both places. And the movie tested extremely well in both places. It was much higher than I expected in America, by the way. It tested higher in America, even. Um, But there were sequences in the movie, of which you've seen now, that are purely built for Eurovision fans. And those are some of the highest testing sequences in the movie. And then when we ran it in America, it was still the highest testing sequences. It was really amazing that Americans didn't need to understand the concept of the, of the contest. They don't really need to follow the contest or they were able to so easily because there's so many singing contests 
um, song contests in America that everyone's used to the format in some way. But it was, uh, you know, it was, it's really amazing that it translates to America really well. In fact, there was something even just as joyful. The movie is really made for Eurovision fans. I wanted to make sure we acknowledged and nailed it for people that love it, that it's, it's, it's the right kind of movie for them. The thing that was amazing to me is that in America, it became so beloved by the audiences that saw it that they were not having any trouble with the distinction, that, with the fact that they didn't know Eurovision. Like, that did not affect them. And by the way, I didn't know Eurovision until I read the script. I'd never heard of it. Yeah. Well, something, something that I want to actually commend you on is yeah. that the film does... Um, it, uh, I want to, I wrote this down. It has fun with the idea of your Euro, Eurovision without making fun of it. That's right. Very important. I didn't, and, you know, oh, sorry. when I first called Will, Will sent me the script and I read it and I loved it. And I, and I did not know Eurovision. By fact, when I finished the script, I called my agent. I said, look, it's an amazing movie. It just, you know, the title's terrible. <laughs> and he's like, I think this is a real thing, David. And I'm like, what? So I went and Googled it and was like, holy crap. Like, it's like discovering the dark web or something. There was millions of posts and YouTube videos and, you know, for basically 63 years worth of footage and every version thereof. It's so fanatic there. And there's 180 million viewers of this every year. It's bigger than the Super Bowl. So imagine something that's bigger than the Super Bowl, and we've never even heard of it. So once I did my research and I kind of fell in love with what this thing was, I realized very quickly when I called Will and I said, there's so many people that love this. Like, I love the idea of a comedy set in this world. I'm not a fan of making fun of them. I don't think that that's, I'd rather be making a love letter to them uh, with the movie and so that they really embrace it. And my example was always the Coen brothers Fargo where those characters are set in a very specific world with specific accents and specific kind of points of view. But the filmmakers don't look down on those characters. They're not making fun of them. You know, they're actually being portrayed in a very straight way. And that became our anchor for the movie, which was just, let's try to throw our own version of Eurovision, but make it really legit. How is it that no one has made a movie about Eurovision in America yet? Because nobody knows about it, by the way. That's the other thing. Like, I don't think this movie could have gotten made at any other time with any other studio. Netflix had the balls to kind of, you know, it wasn't an expensive movie, but as far as comedies go, it was a, it was a solid budget because you have to pull off this event that's insane. You know, we don't have a music show on television with 20,000 people in attendance in the audience. As soon as I realized that, I almost panicked because I, I went to Scott Stuber and the, the heads of Netflix and said, you know, if we're going to sell this to those 180 million people who love this and watch this every year, it's got to look and smell and taste like real Eurovision. And we can't, we don't have the budget to do that. So I have to go to Tel Aviv in six weeks with a film crew and shoot these audiences and all of my wide shots for the movie have to be boarded in advance and figured out and photographed with the live audience while it's happening. And that's what we did. They got, they got behind it. Yeah. Uh, also that, that really, that helps and makes it work, but I want to jump backwards. A lot of people yeah. who, who are watching this won't realize you have a history with directing music videos. I do. Yeah. So talk about some of the artists you worked with and maybe how that 
history and, and working on music videos helped with this film? You know, the very first music video I got hired for was for Tupac. And then we ended up doing two videos um, uh, together. And it was just a great experience. You know, music videos is still storytelling. It's still how you break down a song and what you want people to feel cinematically, what you want them to feel emotionally. And over the years of like doing videos for them and then later for, you know, most recently, those last few years, I've done three or four, four videos for Maroon 5, two of which are two of the biggest videos in the history of YouTube. And so no big deal, no big deal, yeah. but they, but they, you, you start to see like how, when you get the chemistry, right, whether it was the sugar video I did with them or the girls like you video, you know, those are both over one's over 3 billion views. One's over two and a half billion views. And you just, you start to connect with certain things that you can do in the storytelling of that art form. You know, it is its own art form because first of all, you don't want to ruin someone's song. Everybody has their, when, when music videos started, I was kind of bummed out. I was like, I have my own associations when I listen to Born to Run. I don't want to, you know, or whatever song it is, um, Duran Duran or whatever you're watching, Billy Idol. Those were those first videos I remembered. And I, you know, the ones that really worked, I loved. And the ones that didn't, I almost hated them because they were ruining my feelings about the song. So I think that the, that the most important thing when it comes to music and movies, and by the way, this was an amalgam for me. I love the idea of being able to make a musical movie and have the music all written and created for the film, being able to put on those big stage shows, choreograph everything, come up with designs, lighting, color, and camera movement. And, you know, they have certain camera movement that's very iconic in Eurovision. And I set up my cameras exactly like they did in Tel Aviv. And um, one of the things that happened, you know, they have a, their crane in a certain area. They have their, um, uh, their wire cam set in a certain place. They do their steady cam 360 shots on every single one of those kind of performances. I wanted to shoot it the way they shot it, but then in, inside the sequences, I often lift off and go into some of my fastballs that I developed during music videos. You know, there are things that you do that you find that are very effective and you start to repeat those things. You end up with a toolkit over 20 years of doing those kinds of videos. Um, but it was always a really rewarding and exciting way to, to make films and to understand music and movement and editing and lighting. And it's just become something that, the amalgam of all those years, those decades of shooting music videos kind of came to a head for this specific movie because I needed to use all of that, whether it's in the montages or whether it's in this song along sequence or whether it's actually on the live performance and how I want people to feel at the end of the movie during, you know, something like you saw at the end of the film, like the big music piece at the end. Uh, yeah, I'm going to get into some spoilers uh, later, which we're going to run after release. But one of, okay. the thing, uh, one of the things that this film, you have to have music that works to make a movie like this. So, like, let's talk about Ya Ya Ding Dong, yeah. which I'm still humming because <laughs> it's ridiculous. And, it's some of the other, and some of the other songs, but like, you, you guys came up with a bunch of music. How tough was it to get these songs to a Man. point where you're happy with it? I have to tell you, I'm a musician and I love music. And I, you know, my mentor, who's Ridley Scott, who I worked in commercials for decades at his company, once said to me, he produced my first film, Play Pigeons. 
And he said to me at one point, because I had thrown some music in very quickly because I had to get ready to show him very early. And he looked at me, he says, is this all your, the music that your, is your favorite music for what's in? And I said, no, 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 not at all. He goes, never show a scene without the music that you love. He's like, it's the only thing you get control of is the music. Your music should always be great. Then I saw him throw out an entire score on one of his movies once on the final mixing stage. Threw it out, had someone else come in and rewrite. And it left a really strong impression on me. And look, if you're going to do a musical, you want the music to be at least super entertaining and super fun and good. You know, and the first thing that I said to uh, Amy Dunning, who's the head of music at Netflix, is I need really great songwriters. Like, I don't want this to be a joke. It can't, we can't, again, much like you said about the tone of the movie, we can't go in and make it stupid and silly. It's not, it's not going to fly. So she put me in touch with a group of songwriters and they all did a bake-off. And this guy, Savin Koteka, who works with Max Martin at the Swedish Svengali of hit songwriting, um, had writ, wrote, played me Double Trouble, and, which is you know, their main song in the movie. And it has never been touched or changed. It came out like he, he pooped the egg out whole. It was perfect. I was just like, and we were really blown away. And we were like, oh my God, like the hook of this song could be a real hook of a real song. So he went in and I brought him on to be the executive music producer on the whole movie. And I said, I want you to help me figure out how to do all of this. Ya Ya Ding Dong was one of those songs took a little bit, took a bunch of different people, a bunch of different writers to really nail. Um, but other songs like Lion of Love, I had something in my head. I was like, I kind of have like an opera beginning, like a, like a, a kind of semi-Russian, semi, and, and to get into the song. And he took that and ran with it and ended up with that song. He came back to me with that song. I gave one set of notes about, I'd love him to hit a falsetto in this one area. And that song was that song. And because we had those two main songs so early done, when I went to Tel Aviv, I had the lighting designer at the Real Eurovision design the lights to the songs and run them with the real audience there at, the, at Eurovision. So I have the audience with my lighting. When I turn around and cut to the overs or cut to anything, it is the Real Eurovision and they are actually dancing and going crazy to the real songs. So... It was amazing, but you know, song by song by song, there were you know there were a lot of suggestions that were written in the script that were very funny from Will and Andrew Steele. I think they wanted a tambourine army. We couldn't quite figure that out. There was also like a, a Dutch hillbilly kind of uh, stray cats band that we couldn't figure out. But along the way, we found a bunch of other great music. Um, the last song in the movie, Husevik, was the most labored song in the movie. It took a long, long time for, to get that one right. I think Savin did 17 versions of that song, of the same song, just reworking it when the Icelandic comes in, when it doesn't, you know, all that stuff. But when you watch the movie, it's really entertaining that it really runs from beginning to end. And you're, you're always in, when you're in a musical sequence, you're in something that really works and really feels good as far as music goes. You know, they all are very solid. Um, Arista Records came on to do the soundtrack. When they heard, the, when they saw the movie and they're like, we want it. And um, it turns out the guy who runs the company's mother wrote a song for Eurovision in 19 whatever. Right. And that won. So he was very invested in being a part of the soundtrack. I would imagine that the last song, which I, I forget the title. Uh, I would 
Yeah, I would imagine that's going to actually play on the radio in Iceland again and again and again and again. Yeah, I hope so. We do hope so. You know, um, yeah. Yeah. But the music is the music was critical. I mean, look, there are plays that people love, so I don't want to like upset people. But when I went to see Cats as a kid, there were like one or two songs that I actually could sing along with. One of them that was great, uh, you know, I don't remember what was it, Tomorrow or whatever. There's the big I song. I think it's called Me- Memories. Memories, Memories. Yeah. Tomorrow is another play that has <laughs> only a couple great songs. And I always used to have a problem with the fact that I was sitting through musicals without great music everywhere, which I think Hamilton really blew the top off of when you're actually sitting yeah. in something and going like every single song, like this would be, this would be Zeppelin one, you know, like, it would be every song is a winner. It would be a perfect album. And I just felt like that's what you have to try to shoot for. You know, people are sitting there. You have their attention. What are you doing with their attention? What do you want them to experience? What do you want them to go through? Um, or what do you want them to feel? And every one of those, even if it's, you know, cooling with the homies, <laughs> which is like a wink at like, you know, a Swedish guy trying to do a rap song. Not that there aren't good Swedish rappers, but, you know, we kind of have the corner on uh, rappers here in America. But Savin wrote that song, by the way. That is Savin's voice on that song. I never changed it because it was so good. I was like, all right, it's great. So I got very lucky. We hired world-class songwriters to write the music. And um, Jorgen who wrote, you know, a lot of song of the hits that Britney Spears did, wrote uh, Demi's song for the movie, Looking, in, you know, in the Mirror. And uh, it's like that, you know, you just, you bring in great people around you and you end up with really great results. It's so funny because I would imagine what happens when someone is writing a song for the movie and then realizes, wait a minute, this could actually maybe be a hit song. And then it's like, do I put it in the movie? Do I release it to make a shit ton of money? Dude, I'm telling you, the very first song, Double Trouble, when they played it for us, Savin goes, you know, if you don't like it, we can do something else. And I said, no, no, I like it. And I remember him looking over at the, at this guy who he wrote the song with, and they were looking at each other like, okay. And later I was like, what was that look about? And he goes, well, that melody we were going to give to Ariana Grande if you didn't use it, because that thing is, we know that the hook is great. And I thought that was hilarious. It's exactly that. Like, I was like, no, it's ours, and we're keeping it, you know. They, they uh, I am sure they would have made a lot more money if some of these songs had been released as singles for other real artists as opposed to our, um, our people. Yeah, at the same time, though, if you're trying to push into movies, this is a great calling card. It's a great calling card. He did an incredible job. And, you know, I have a musical that's being an animated musical at Paramount that I'm producing right now. Um, and uh, I brought him in to, to write a couple demos because they were very impressed. They were like, have you worked with anyone? I'm like, I just worked with a group of people that were incredible, you know? Yeah, but this is my point. Yeah. You know, it goes like that. Um, so uh, talk a little bit about maybe the toughest battle you had to overcome while making this. What's the thing that really, you know, stuck out? You know, the hardest thing really in getting the movie done, well, aside from the fact that we weren't done with the movie when the COVID thing happened so i was out in the world while the world was shut down finishing the movie going into these isolated booths with high con high definition monitors where i was on links to people all over la or all over the world or driving up to ojai where my mixer 
Paul Massey has his own studio and mixing with him, just him having to run the whole show by himself. It was very hard to finish the movie. It was very hard to finish the movie in time. Um, but aside from that, I would say the hardest thing was really getting to Iceland. You know, it's so hard these days to get movies to shoot where they take place or not to have them read. The Change Up was a movie that really should have been in L.A. It was written for L.A. Ryan Reynolds' character was an aspiring actor. It moved to Atlanta for financial reasons. And, you know, it, and we could not make the movie in Los Angeles at that time. And they, by the way, their rebates and their tax refunds were too restrictive and too hard to get at that time 10 years ago. Yep. They've done a much better job with it now. But getting to Iceland, even though it, there was a number in the budget that made sense in the overall budget, was really, really hard because you have to bring a lot of people to a very expensive place to shoot. But I really insisted that we go there for the first, and by the way, I had to pick the farthest fucking place in Iceland, of course, to take the crew. Husavik is literally, you know, from Reykjavik, about as far as you can go north and, and not have avoided it. So they're like, you sure it has to be up there? And it has But I stood my ground and Netflix backed me and eventually let me get up there. And I think it makes a huge difference. I mean, you've seen the movie, you can feel that it's a real world it's where it's supposed to take place. You think of all these movies that we grew up with, whether it was, I mean, you can name almost anything. Look at the first, first um, uh, Superman movie with Dick Donner. You know, when they're out there in that little town and in the beginning of the movie and they're burying his father and you see the little town and the church in the background, like, I'm sorry, you can't get that in California or one of the five tax rebate states in America. You have to haul your ass out there in the middle of nowhere. You know, dances with wolves. What? So getting movies to take place in places that you're taking people to and showing a new, something new is really important to filmmaking. I mean, the whole idea is you go into a theater, the lights go out, or you're home, and the lights go out, and you're the, and the, the thing begins, and you're taken to another world. That's, the, that's part of the joy of movies. And we don't go anywhere but Boston, Atlanta, Michigan, New Mexico, and New Orleans. Like, that's basically everything. That is 90% of what you watch in the movie theater takes place in those five places. No, 100%. And also, yeah. what I think a lot of people don't realize, like, for, when you look at a James Bond movie, half the reason a James Bond movie is James Bond is because they're filming in these crazy locations. All over the place. Or these Mission Impossible movies, which have gone, yeah. like, to another level. I mean, I have to say that what... Uh, you know, what Chris and Tom have done with those last three movies are unbelievable. Like the whole franchise changed. Something just really shifted up with four, five, and six for me that were awesome. You know, really, really awesome. And three as well, by the way. The one that Brad did was amazing. But, it, but you know, it just is like, I love that. And it's, that is, believe it or not, part of the battle these days. When they're like, can't you shoot it in Scotland? You know, and I'm like, it. it there's no stone houses in Iceland. They are literally, they don't build with stone. They don't, it's a lava field. Like the whole place is a lava field. They don't have chimneys because it's all thermal. Like everything is made out of different kinds of corrugated metals and different kinds, you know, there's just, it's not the same world and you can't get that by just pretending. And I didn't want to pretend to the audience. I didn't want people from Eurovision at the very beginning of the movie who love Eurovision to watch the beginning of this film and go like, oh, we're not even in Iceland. Like they're just putting a, it's like me showing wide shots of Toronto and just putting like New York City because I know I'm shooting it over to people in, you know, yeah. Kansas. 
but they still know the difference between New York and Toronto. They do. Well, there's something else. I've been very lucky and I got to go to Iceland once. And the thing about Iceland is there's no place like Iceland. It's, it's an anomaly. Yeah. It's like, it's literally, if you want to go to another planet, yeah. go to Iceland. Yeah, I know. Did you love it? I, I climbed a glacier. Yeah. I got to go through. I, it was an I amazing experience. It. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. And by the way, that's just where it was set. Once I got there, I was impossible. I was lucky because Netflix had their retreat there. In the, in the same year. So while we were still arguing over whether I was going to go, they all went. And when they came back, they're like, okay, so what, is, what are the numbers on this thing again? And I was like, thank you. No amounts of presentations that I had done or convincing or letters or passion could replace them actually going and, and being there and going, wow, this is something else. Yeah, that's the reason why anytime you need to film another planet, you go to Iceland. Yeah, that's right. Every that's movie. right. It was Nolan that was the first one that sent me there. I was, oh. I was telling you, I was taking some time off. I was like, I need to go on vacation somewhere. We're somewhere cool. And he goes, Iceland. I'm like, for vacation? He was like, yeah. 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 It's, it, did you eat? This is really off on a, a thing, but yeah. I ate bread that was baked in the ground. Yes. Yeah. Did you do that? I ate the, be the bread baked in the ground. I did not eat the, the weird the weird fish thing, that raw fish thing. The oh, shark. I don't do that. No, no, no. no. no, no. I couldn't even deal with the smell in the scout van. It was like, like intense. But, no, no. but the bread in the ground, if anyone ends up going to Iceland, get the bread in the ground. Get the bread in the ground, man. They cook it yeah. right and they put it inside the earth and they cook it. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Jumping back in. Um, so some actors love to do like, you know, they get it on the first take. Other actors like warm up and it takes them a little while. Some people love to do improv. Some people have to stick to the script. Talk a little bit about, while making this one, what was it like when you have, like, how did Will and Rachel, you know, um, work together? And what is it like when you have actors that like certain things and other actors that like it another way? Part of directing is blending everybody's process together so that each actor, for me, can have their process. And, and you know, they all need to go through different, things and preparation and different things as far as on the day to get themselves loose and real and taking risks. You know, you want them to have fun. And like anything, you know, the great thing about we have this thing called editing, as you said, right. and I try to encourage them. I'm like, just try some stuff. Now we really work the scripted rehearsals and I do do rehearsals. I've come from theater. So I like to break the whole script out and sit in the room and work with each actor individually, then put them together and then put them in groups, take them to location. I try to work the blocking out ahead of time if I can, because I want to know how to shoot it. So there's a lot that goes in, but the minute we hit the set, no matter how much preparation there is, I cover the pages and then we loosen it up and we see what happens. And there's magic that happens all of the time, you know? And um, I remember in the, in the, in the scene with um, uh, the sheriff after Lars gets arrested in the yeah. first act, you know, Rachel just said, you're being like really uncool. Like it just was not even, by the way, that was day one of the shoot. Everyone's working on their accents and it came out. It sounded so funny. And Will will grab onto anything he hears and keep running with it. Um, and the other actor that was there that day, who's from Iceland, um, grabbed it as well, and everybody started riffing on it. And the same thing happened when Will said, come on, guy. <laughs> you know, like, right. Those little weird things that became hooks, and be it's interesting because those became the first things in my house that I saw as an edited scene, 
And my kids are still saying that. Like, I'll be like, dude, time to get off your video games. You're being like really uncool. I'm like, all right, get off your video game. But so there's all kinds of like improv and stuff that does still happen on set. A bunch of it happens in the rehearsal room. Um, but like any of the movies where I kind of have the, the duos in them, whether it's, you know, Bateman and Ryan or Vince and Owen, like, you know, I try to find those rhythms and the, and the relationship and the chemistry between them so that it becomes more naturalistic. And so the movie moves in between script and, and the moment, you know, sure. and, and, and with someone like Will, I mean, he's a monster improver. I mean, he really can go that run where he talks about his penis and compares it to a Volvo is a one-off one take only happened once that one time. And it's so pitch perfect. And the minute I call cut, everybody is laughing and he's like, I don't know, like you can use it or not. And I'm like, Oh, I'm using that. There's no way I'm not using that. So there's all kinds of those wonderful, wonderful things. There's some stuff that had to hit the editing room. This is kind of maybe the first movie where, some things that hit the editing room floor because of length, I really wish were in the movie. Well, um, we're gonna we're gonna get into editing in a second. Believe me, okay. this, is, this is stuff I yeah. want to touch on. But I want to first. I want to talk about Fire Saga. The name um, was it always Fire Saga? That was that was Andrew Steele and 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 Will. Uh, yeah, they they just Andrew Steele may be the best name person in the business if there's a writer who comes up with funnier names and titles and things i mean he came up with fire saga lars i mean by the way lars is not even an icelandic name <laughs> it's just at one point i finally turned to him we were almost done shooting and i was like but and someone from iceland came up to me from the crew who was icelandic and living in london at the time and said you know lars is not a an icelandic name and i'm like oh Oh, I'm like, Andrew, did you know that? And he's like, oh, yeah, I knew that. It's just it's a, such a funny name. Me and Will couldn't stop calling him Lars. But Secret and, um, you know, all of those crazy names and all the crazy titles and the names of the bands no. are all Dalibor Jinsky. I don't know where he gets this stuff from, but he just pumps out really funny names. You know, he was a head writer on SNL, so I'm sure. Yeah, not talented at all. Not talented um, at all. Uh, how many takes were ruined from someone messing up an accent? A few. The funny thing is Demi Lovato was getting the accent right and kept stopping herself thinking she was getting it wrong. And I was like, no, don't stop until I call cut. Just keep going. <laughs> um, but, you know, Will just somehow understood it because he lives in Sweden every summer for three months. So he's around that kind of Nordic thingy. Um, Rachel is a perfectionist and a total sharpshooter and you know when she has to do something she does it all the way you know Rachel learned the accent how to sing how to play guitar how to play piano like all of it and started you know five six five months in advance and you know I could see every day whether she was doing one or the other or multiple a day and she never she never stopped until we were done shooting I mean she really stuck with it it was incredible uh, it's been 15 years since Rachel and Will worked together with you on Wedding Crashers, yeah. um, which is crazy to me that it's been 15 years. I know. But, um, but talk a little bit about reuniting with the two of them since then. You know what I mean? It's been loved it. crazy. I loved it. You know, something, I, something really hit me on this movie 
Because, you know, Wedding Crashers was two actors I had already worked with being put together in a movie. I'd worked with Vince and Clay Pigeons and Owen on Shanghai Nights. And what happened when they came together for Wedding Crashers was that there was a trust and an experience behind both of us, all of us, where we could work more freely and I could push them harder as a coach. Like I could really ask for more and push and push and push. And they really responded and they trusted me and they knew I wasn't going to make them look bad or if they, you know, if something didn't work out, I was going to cut it in or not have the right taste for them. So it was interesting. It didn't occur to me. Will and I have been looking for something to do together for for over 15 years since then. And when I got the script, I loved it. So I knew I had Will and we were trying to figure out who she was. And I knew I wanted the love story to be real. Uh, and I needed someone who was funny and had a certain timing and also seemed like fresh new chemistry with Will. Will's been with so many different people. And when she came to mind, and I love Rachel, and she's just so talented as an actor, but it had been a while since she'd done comedy. So it seemed really fun and fresh to pull her in. Um, only when she had signed on and somewhere in a news announcement did they say, oh, united together again with the director of Wedding Crashers, did I realize that this is us all working together again. But I had the same experience where both of them trusted each other, trusted me. The process was so much smoother. It, was, it yielded such better results because there was a familiar, familiarity between all of us that I do think the reason some of these performances in the movie are so special and fresh is because of that dynamic. Um, and, you know, the two of them, she loves Will, and Will adores her, but had never worked with her, except for they'd never been on screen together in Wedding Crashers, you know? They were in the movie, but they'd never been in a scene together. And when we sat down on the first day of rehearsals, well, first of all, she flew to Tel Aviv to come to uh, see the finals with us. We, you know, we were there shooting, Will came along, Rachel flew out. Um, we all sat down together, and immediately it was really comfortable and fun to be with each other again. But I, you know, I think that there's something very special about it coming back together again. I do think that there's, there are tonalities in the movie to the casting that are familiar to what I enjoyed about Wedding Crashers. Wedding Crashers was one of those movies where I just cast every role in just such a specific way. I love the cast. I love the ensemble feel of that group of people. And this movie, the same thing happened. Um, and it doesn't happen every movie. It just happened on this film in a really special way, including the fact that aside from the top five or six people on the movie, Will, Rachel, Pierce, Dan, everyone else in the movie is from the country of origin that they are from in the movie. We found Melissa in Greece. She was supposed to be Greek in the movie. It was written as Greek. We found her. She's Greek. We brought her over. She's never really done a movie. She's never done a movie like this before. Um, and she was great. And all those Icelandic characters... You know, um, Mikael is from Sweden, but I love him as an actor and I knew of him and I wanted him. Everyone else from Dari, who's the most known actor of that group, who was also in like um, Walter Mitty and other things that people have seen, they're all Icelandic for real. And they are unbelievable actors. They were in incredibly funny, great timing, delivered the lines in ways I never could have expected. I never had to watch anyone's accent because they're all from yep. Iceland. But it was this miraculous thing, like all of these people of a certain tone all came together. So whoever's on screen, you're somehow 
the baton being handed off of what the tone of the movie is is consistent through everybody, and it's really, really lovely. Um, and there were some people that were really funny, and just I couldn't get everything in. Again, this is the only movie I've ever made where I could probably name six lines that I really almost regret already are not in the film. The movie was too long. It was really good longer, by the way. It was really good 10 minutes longer. It just scored way higher once I did the experiment of shortening it up. Um, I'm going to get into editing, but I got to ask. So Pierce Brosnan's in the movie, and he's 15 years older than Will in real life. Was there ever any talk about, yeah, I don't, I mean, there's an age thing here. Do you know what I mean? You know, we, I looked at pictures of him. He's gray. We just went with it. Uh, honestly, you know, Pierce was Will's, you know, Will came to me and was like, this guy's got to be the most attractive man in the world, and he hates me. <laughs> He's like, it's got to be the most demoralizing thing to think it's someone that you really would want to like you who doesn't like you. And I was like, who is that? He goes, well, it's Pierce Brosnan. And honestly, I wrote a letter to Pierce going, look, this is what Will said to me. And we really want you to do the movie and please read the script and see what you think. And he was game. He was really, really fun. Um, he was great to work with. It's so funny because I went to Michael Shannon at one point to play one of the brothers in the judge for Robert Downey. And he goes, but I'm the same age. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, but Michael, it doesn't matter. You, you know, you kind of look a little older than him. And he's like, yeah, but I'm the same age. And I was like, okay, forget it. For Michael Shannon, this doesn't work. Yeah, I've uh, that's how, um, I've talked to Michael a few times, um, yeah. and, and that sounds like Michael. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, dude, I went, I watched him in a play. I went backstage. It was on Broadway. Um, he was in my friend Craig Wright's play, and he really wasn't having it. He was like, honestly, he was stuck. He like there, there was no conversation about the character. The age just froze us right where we were. <laughs> um, so Pierce, and then Dan Stevens, who oh, is like we're gonna we're gonna get into Dan. I, okay, I have, you go. Oh, I want I want to add because Dan is another level in this movie. He, Insane. He, if if you honestly, Dan, that's a character <clears throat> that with the wrong performance completely kills this movie. And Dan, absolutely, Dan has to deliver this this you know. It's, it's, he has to toe a line being from Russia and, the, you know, he has to yeah. deliver a very specific performance that if it moves a little bit, it's done. So talk about... And if it's colored wrong, it's done. And it becomes, again, a parody. And then that's a disaster. Yes. Is it, like that character more than anything by the end when you real, realize the story and there's a reveal, a spoiler in that, it would ruin the movie. It would yes. honestly ruin the movie. And, uh, and so... It was interesting. He got stuck in my head early on. There were a lot of people that wanted this role. A lot. And a lot of actors that are, frankly, bigger than Dan. And it just felt like it wasn't a stunt casting thing. It shouldn't be a stunt casting thing. It should be grounded. And it should be, and I need to believe the love triangle. And I need to believe that this guy, is, and it's got to be someone who's really fun. Yeah. And I was at breakfast in Tel Aviv, and I said to to um will i go what about dan stevens and he's like he's like dan, is what's he been in i'm like well if you ever saw down now he's like oh my god is he the guy that died in the car crash i said yeah and he goes that's him he goes yes that guy we should get that guy he was so fully behind it 
And when I went to Dan, Dan loves Will as well, but was very cautious. He was, he was not committing to the movie. We had a breakfast together. We had some emails. We had a phone call. Like, I think he was a little worried. And, you know, and I said to him, I said, look, you have to play it masculine. It's not about playing it flamboyant and colorful or all of the, you know, there's, there's a way you could play it that could be wrong. I want you to be real. I want you to be yourself. I want you to be grounded. I want you to nail the accent properly. Like he's a real actor's actor, you know? Um, And I loved him in Legion. I thought he was like, I don't even know what was happening in that TV show, but he was so, I was so compelled by it. And I had seen him in one of those Night at the Museum movies, and I couldn't tell whether he had a comedy chops or not. But, you know, you sit opposite an actor for a meal and you get a lot. You start to see all the other colors that are not the characters that they've chosen. And I could see he was really driven and really sweet and also very kind. And I wanted that character to be kind. Like, that was the trick is, like, let me flip the bad guy thing. Like, let me have him say everything he says is the right thing. Sure. It's the, it's, he's not being malicious because he's being truthful. They have to face a certain truth. That's the dynamic. And so Dan comes in, and he's hesitating and hesitating. And Tabitha Duomo, who choreographed the movie for me, who is a, you know, won an Emmy for So You Think You Can Dance, she's an amazing choreographer, sends me the tape of the first choreography for Lion of Love, which is what you see. It's barely changed. And I'm like, okay, this guy's either going to shit or get off the pot right now. And I sent it to him. And without any kind of note, I just, I said, here's, oh, wait, right, I said, Here's your choreography for Lion of Love. And I was like, this is either going to blow him out of the movie or it, I'm going to get him. And he sent me a text back that said, I'm on my way to the gym. <laughs> I don't think I should wear a shirt anywhere in the film. And then he had this little lion insignia that he had. And I started laughing. And I remember uh, telling Will, I said, I think we got Dan Stevens now. Um, and, you know, look, the guy showed up. He was so prepared. He did such an, an amazing job. Rachel was thrilled because, again, again, another actor who nails the comedy but is an actor, you know, first and foremost an actor. And so she's playing opposite something grounded and real, which is the way I get to the, to the tone that I get to. Everybody's having fun, but nobody's just – Nobody is just riffing out of nowhere. You know, when it comes to the ad-libs, it's not just throwing out lines of dialogue. It's, it's, it's coming from the interior of the character and who they are and what the situation is. You know, those scenes play like drama scenes to me. Yeah, by the way, this is one of these uh, movies I'm, I'm really happy to be talking about with you. And I'm so happy I don't have fucking four minutes because there's yeah. so much that I'm talking about. that I'm No, realizing. no, I love it. You're asking movie questions. You're asking filmmaking questions. This is yeah. like the... I don't have to talk about like, did Will do anything funny on set or did anybody ever fall down and, you know. Couldn't care less. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I hate that. Couldn't care less. Yeah. Um, No, but I do think that Dan is spectacular in the film. And I do think that without his performance, this movie does not work. No. You know? Look, he's the same as like Bradley was in, in, in Wedding Crashers. You know, Bradley was like... I was casting forever for that role. And everybody was like, what is your deal with this character? And I'm like, well, he's the antagonist. Like, and I want him to kind of be legit, you know, like I want him to be, he's got to do crazy shit with a shotgun. Let's go hunting. And like, I don't want that to be campy and off its head. I don't, I don't understand. 
I don't understand that tone. Look, they're guys, whatever they did to get to Zoolander or whatever they did to get to Austin Powers, which is a movie I love, I can't direct that. I don't understand what they're following. I don't understand the plotting. I don't understand the character drive and the, and the reasoning. And I do it all. You know, Owen used to laugh at me all the time. So I'd be arguing with Vince on set about something or we've been trying to work something out. He'd be like, what do you, you guys think you're making the Godfather? And I'm like, what? Of course we are. We, it's, we're losers. We're making comedies, but we, they're important to us. And we, and we think that when he comes up the stairs after he's gotten the hand job and he sees you on the steps, he's angry from the fact that he wants to get out of this house. And then you talk about being with Jane Seymour and he says, okay, motorboat. And he takes a left-hand turn. That's hard acting, man, if you're going to make it grounded. And he was always able to do that. And, you know, but there is, there are no scenes in any of my comedies that I couldn't sit down and talk to you about them like a drama, like what the intentions are, what happens before they come in the room, you know, what the objective is for each character, which is going to be dynamically opposed and why they collide, which is where the comedy comes from. And those things have never changed to me, whether I do the judge or whether I do <laughs> Eurovision, I'm still like this weirdo who's working through it with my actors, which is really easy with people like Will and Dan and, and Rachel, who are very used to that, you know, yeah. or Mikael, by the way. Mikael is not a comedy guy, dude. He's just a fucking guy with sick presence, you know. Completely. Now let's, now let's get into editing, um, which yeah. I always ask every director, uh, how long was your first cut compared to the finished film? I had a bit of a shock on this one. Um, is it, it over was, three? It was three hours. <laughs> right. And I was But I, you know, what we had... Well, I, have to, wait, I have to ask you, was your three-hour cut an assembly cut or like a cut that like people could watch it? No, no, it was an assembly, but it was okay. a very well-edited assembly. It had everything in it, but including every musical sequence at full length. So, you know, by the time we cut that down, you know, there was a cut that was around two and a half hours that wasn't budging. It was one of those really difficult times when you're like, this can't be the movie. It runs really good at 227. We, I don't know why but it can't be the movie. Like it just can't be the movie. And so you have to make certain decisions about how you're going to tell the story and what story, what C story or D stories have to go, what jokes have to possibly go. Um, it forces you to shore up the edit and to bring it in. And the mountain rises as it gets shorter. You know, there's a place where it was 10 minutes shorter than it is here. And the movie didn't work. Um, I literally pulled out, the B story just to see how only the A story would run. And um, it just didn't work. And the B story with Lemtov was important. And, you know, there's a, there's a, the second act does a very unusual shape towards the back half where, you know, they break up and then they, and the whole coming back, their whole, from the halfway point in the movie, they're, they're kind of pr problems with each other. Um, I lifted all that out at one point. And, and it, the movie just did not connect emotionally to the end, to that song at the end and to what ends up happening. But, you know, you get there and then eventually you find your way. But editing is a really, you also can't accelerate editing. It's one of those things, you know, directors are given 10 weeks to, sh to do their cut. Yeah, it's crazy. I, I, it's not a lot of time. You know, when you think that there's 120 scenes in a movie and you have 50 days. 
So every half of a day up until lunchtime, you're cutting a scene, you know, and the next, if you look at all that time and trying to figure out the music and trying to figure out the rhythms and what stays and what goes, there are three musical acts that were amazing that didn't make it into the movie. Um, Jamie, the guy that plays um, Kevin Swain, there's, there's a couple exchanges that were absolutely hilarious. And just at the moment in the movie when it landed, it was just too much. And you try watching the whole, the biggest exhaustion is how many times you watch the whole movie and trying to stay fresh. I do this thing where I turn off the color and watch the movie in black and white when I'm finally burnt out because all of a sudden you can see it or I have them flip the whole movie so all the eye lines are backwards. And you watch the movie, but you, it's amazing. You can see the movie again. You can feel the rhythms. The most important part of the process is getting in a room with an audience. And then you end up, especially in comedy, in a binary world for me. I end up with like, that got a laugh, that did not get a laugh, or that got a chuckle. And now with the chuckle, it was their information they didn't have that got them to the laugh. Is the joke not good enough? Or is there a rhythm that's, that's off from it or a reaction shot that was where the laugh is? Something Jackie Chan taught me. Yeah. Jackie would say, if, you can, if you're not getting a laugh, cut to my close-up. And he would say that on set all the time. He'd say, make sure you shoot a cl my close-up for the whole thing, even if I'm not talking. And I was like, well, I do that anyways, Jackie. Don't worry. And I do remember a couple times when I'm like, that joke just doesn't work. And I was thinking in my head, what's Jackie doing at this moment? And you cut to Jackie's close-up of confusion or whatever, and I swear to God, you got into the theater with an audience, and that was where the laugh was. Like half a dozen times in the movie, that's where the laugh was. So the audience experience shows you when it's moving, when it's not moving, and it's where I understood that for this movie in particular, the back half of the film, the third act, was running great. Um, because the audience got invested. They weren't moving in their seats. No one's going to the bathroom. From that stretch, when he goes to Iceland, you know, for basically actually from when Double Trouble happens in the movie through the end of the film, when he leaves Eurovision, people were glued into the movie. It was, un it was really an unbelievable thing because the laughter is a little less in the third act, as always happens. You know, and you're sitting there and you get into this emotional lift towards the end of the film. And it just, it was, it was really amazing. So the audience teaches you more than anything as far as how the rhythm and the pacing of a movie works. And so they affect the edit a lot. I did a lot of internal screenings where I bring sometimes 10 people just to feel it. And sometimes I would get, go over to another studio and I'd fill, you know, a theater of 150, 300 people and run the movie just to see, I do it, but non non-scored um, test where you just get information from the audience. You do a focus group at the end and you learn a lot. And there's, there's some jokes in the movie that I did not, you know, things I was going to pull out that will gets huge laughs on. I mean, when he's in that police station, he says, you know, he says it's, it's, you know, it's for life or death situations only. He goes, and I could say that this town is on its last breath. And it's a life or death situation that I go to your vision. I was like, that's just not going to get a laugh. It's just not. I knew, I knew it. Will saw that it wasn't in because I, I brought him in early. And he goes, I think you just try that line. I'm like, okay, man, I'll try it. Put it in. It got a huge laugh. And I remember looking at Will and he's like, I was like, you're right, man. And like, let me know. You know, like you, sometimes you don't know and you can't run the two and a half hour version in front of an audience.
Sure. A lot of people say that if you really want to hear an honest reaction to a movie after it's been screened, to just sit in the bathroom stall and listen to what people are saying. Have you ever, have you ever done that? I have not done that, uh, except as an audience member. I mean, you remember going after Rocky into the, the you know, or Rocky Two or Rocky Three when it got really stupid. You'd go into the bathrooms and everybody wanted to fight, and you're like, "Wow, this movie's gonna be hit." <laughs> like, it's so big. But I have been um, online to buy tickets on a Friday night to uh, a couple of m- of my own movies um, when I'm trying to go in and see what people think. And when you are standing online and you hear five different ticket booths and everyone keeps ordering the same movie and it's just wedding crashers, wedding crashers, wedding crashers, wedding crashers, wedding crashers, wedding crashers. You're like, okay, this is something's happening here. There's there's a, an incredible feeling when you realize that you have something that's kind of caught and is about to go on a big run. I definitely. So the thing about Netflix, which which I don't think they've done yet, which I think they can do, is. Uh, an offer like an extended cut or more deleted scenes, more of the extras that go on a movie. So yeah. have you had any discussions with them about uh, like the extended version or like these musical numbers that were pulled out, you know, offering them yeah. like a, a deleted scene or as an extra? We never got it done, but there were conversations early and I really, it's too bad because the performances are really amazing. Um, the full choreography of some of those performances. Um, we were had so much in our, I think that if COVID hadn't happened and the editing room was still open when we were dur- during that whole time when we were trying to finish, we would have cut them or released the assemblies of those. Um, but I will have to say that, you know, I, I'm always a little bit pissed off when Wedding Crashers, which I did not want to create an extended cut and they talked me into it. And I remember calling Judd and saying, like, dude, do you do this thing with these, like, they throw all these scenes? And he's like, oh, yeah, people like it on the DVDs. And I remember saying to, Net- to New Line, I don't want this on HBO or any other version with this extra 10 minutes. I took this time out because the movie's better without it. And I c- always catch the longer version running everywhere. And I'm pissed off about it. And I, I remember calling up Richard Brenner and Toby one day going, like, I want you to pull this off HBO. The movie is an hour and 56 minutes on two hours and six minutes. Like it's, these scenes are not good scenes, you know? And, uh, some pe- reason, I mean, it blows my mind that there's a generation of people watching a movie like that and they've never seen the theatrical version. No, you, I've heard that from other people too. Um, uh, so I'm inclined. So my answer to your question is I'm inclined never to do it again. Oh, let, the- not inside the body of the movie. I will never let the, the version of the movie that I finish have scenes inside of it. You know, I don't like Apocalypse Now Redo. I watched it. I love it. I went to the theater. It's one of my favorites. probably been my favorite movie of all time for a while, since I was 13 years old. And then his recut of it, where it's like, okay, less of this and more of that. He's never gotten it right again. It's like the first movie is perfect, frankly. I don't like filmmakers. I don't like, you know... What if Jackson Pollock decided I splashed too much shit? I'm going to put some spots on this painting. Like, what the, the fuck is that about? It's ridiculous, you know. And I have a shirt I should have worn, which says, you know, uh, Han, you know, keep calm and Han shot first. Yeah, don't get me started on that. That's you know, it it just makes me infuriated. You know. Well, the thing that's also an issue, I think, for a lot of fans is that look, if Spielberg wants to go back and he wants to tweak his movie, um, I guess that's his prerogative. But what's frustrating for fans is not offering the original version in a why you know so that you can choose 
Can you find Close Encounters? I can't figure out which cut is the cut I saw in the movie theater of Close Encounters. Um, well, more of him building the thing on the table, less of him building the thing on the table, pulling out the fucking chicken wire. What? I, like, I can't. I think it's insane. Well, I, I actually think, think it's insane. I think with the Close Encounters, and I could be wrong because it's. I could be wrong, but I believe that the the main change is whether or not you see it inside the ship. At the end, in the ship, yeah. or not in the ship, like that stuff. Yeah, I don't want to see inside the ship. It was awesome <laughs> when I left the theater. My imagination was on fucking... That movie is one of the most impactful films I've ever seen. I actually experienced first contact in the theater. Like, I don't think anyone's ever come closer to making you believe that you really are seeing something. And the music and the visual of those aliens, like the whole thing hit a primal place where... We all, the hair stood up on the back of your neck. And I just am like, you know, it's, it's not yours once you put it out in the world. I'm sorry. Once it hangs on a, on a wall in a museum, it's fucking out there. It's not yours. Go do what you want, but you're not allowed to, to touch the original. Listen, or make it I, so I, confusing that, you know, you can't figure it out, you know? Look, I, I'm not arguing with you on that. I got to tell you that. Yeah, I don't know if I'm you saw you. it. But, you know, the, the movie that actually rocked me, for the, and it was my favorite of the year, and I rarely have a favorite movie, was Arrival. Oh, my God. Unbelievable movie. That, that movie, that, yeah. Unbelievable. You know, I read that script, and I loved that script. And I had a moment as a huge science fiction fan where I was like, God, is it ever going to make sense, the flip that you're watching a flash forward instead of a flashback? Like, is, is, is that really in the cinema world? For Denis to trust that that was going to work for all those filmmakers was amazing to me. And when I saw the movie, it made me cry, and I knew it was going to happen. You know, I mean, I, you know, that's part of the sad thing about being a director is if you read a lot of good scripts out there, you end up ruining those movies for yourself. I don't want to know what's going to happen in the movie, you know, when I go in. I really want to be blind, um, which is why I see almost everything on the opening day that I can. Sure. Listen, I, I think Arrival is, is uh, I can't say enough great things about that film. It's Magic. Just, it's really Magic. It's as close as Close Encounters came. Right? That's, that's yeah. about as close as it came. And, and it's just the messaging and, yeah. I could ask you a bunch more questions, but... Um, you got it, man. Dude, you're so smart. I really appreciate the, the deep dive. It's, just, it's, it's such a pleasure to not be talking about the celebrity of my actors and talking about the film itself. It's, it's just refreshing. Napa know-how. Get all the quality parts you need at your locally owned Napa. Because right now, when you order from Napa online, you can pick up curbside at your local store in just 30 minutes. Or get your order delivered direct to your door with free one-day shipping and over 160,000 quality parts when you spend $35 or more. Quality parts delivered quickly and safely. That's Napa Know-How. Napa Know-How. At participating stores, standard ground shipping and exclusions apply. It's that little Chico Pitbull, Mr. 305, better said Mr. Worldwide, and I'm here to tell you about my new podcast, From Negative to Positive, brought to you by my friends over at State Farm. I believe that to have success, you got to play the game so that the game doesn't play you. You know, the biggest risk you take is not taking one. It's very important that you make sure that you make the most out of your money, especially when it comes to insurance. State Farm offers surprisingly great rates. They have great agents standing by helping you personalize your coverage. All this is backed up by award-winning, easy-to-use technology. It's a great price with an even greater service. 
When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.